Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, August 9th, 2023, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. And it's really good to be back with you after a couple weeks off. I, was, I thought I'd be able to do some lives uh, while I was on vacation and then visiting campus at UNLV last week, but it just uh, was too busy and enjoying vacation too much and not have too many meetings when on campus. So I wasn't able to do the lives then, but it's great to be back with you. And there's a lot to cover today. And as we do each week, uh, we take our questions that we ask here on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. If you'd like to subscribe to that email, uh, to that newsletter, uh, there's an email version and a LinkedIn version. I'll drop the link to the, the subscribe page if you prefer the email version. Also put into the chat uh, the link to this week's version of the email newsletter so you can follow along at home as we go through uh, the different questions today and see where the uh, news stories that are prompting these questions are coming from and how uh, you can kind of get the next level detail on what we cover here on the Roundup. You can get some of the initial content uh, from the links that I'm providing in the chat. And Jim, so good to see you on. Uh, Jim Needham, old friend from Ball State, glad uh, you're well. And thanks, uh, thanks for chiming in today. Uh, so good to see, uh, to have you a part of the conversation. So let's get right into it. If you prefer the LinkedIn version, that's actually where the majority of folks who, the over 1,300 people who now subscribe to our newsletter, uh, get their uh, content uh, for, for the SMIE cons uh, consulting newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. In case you're wondering, SMIE stands for Social Media and International Ed. Uh, those are the two foundational pieces of my consulting business that I set up in 2014 and remain a constant part of what I do in terms of the newsletter. Uh, that's the theme for that. And then we take elements of those news stories from the social media side as we're doing today, but primarily the international ed side, oftentimes where those uh, stories or ideas overlap. Uh, we cover that in depth here on the Roundup. So let's get to our first question, uh, and that is, how should social media be used to reach international students? And anyone who's uh, uh, known me for any period of time knows that uh, social media is uh, an important piece of how I talk about reaching international students, and it's uh, been a part of uh, my upbringing since uh, the earliest days uh, of social media. And, uh, I had the pleasure of being at Ball State, where Jim is uh, conveniently a uh, former professor there, connecting from today, uh, where it is in the mid-naughties when social media was just taking off in the United States and globally. Uh, we started uh, realizing that social media was uh, a very significant part of the way our current students communicated. And I asked the question one day, I ran an office that was an all-in-one office for international students, recruitment, advising, programming, orientation, uh, everything. Uh, so uh, in addition to the immigration advising. So I asked some students one time, because we were sending out emails to our events that uh, were meant to help them uh, prepare for OPT or CPT opportunities, those kinds of things, going home for the, for the summer, health insurance issues, those types of, all those kind of immigration related topics. Uh, we'd have these emails we'd send out and we'd, get, we'd send them out to our 500 international students. We'd get five, six, seven, eight students show up to meetings. And I was like, I pulled, pulled some of our current students in and I said, hey, 
we're not getting, we're sending out all these emails about these important events you guys need to know about, but you're, you're, no one's showing up, or very few are. So we're wondering what's what are we missing here? Are, are just people not reading their emails, or are they on some other platforms? What's the deal? And they said, yeah, we're all on Facebook now. And this is 2005, six when Facebook was just taking off. And I said, wow, yeah, that's a kind of light bulb moment for me. Back in the day, well, everybody has to read their email. It's part, it's a university email. They all have to read it. And I realized very quickly from that conversation, yes, they have one, but doesn't mean they, they read it all the time. So uh, to the frustration of many professors and offices around campus, uh, they, that we realized quickly social is where they were spending their time. And that kind of made me, as I developed tools to, to reach out to, uh, to our current students, I was also thinking, well, you know, College students are college students, right? Uh, wherever they are in the world, uh, teenagers are teenagers. Uh, they like the same things uh, in terms of communicating. And this was at a time when mobile phones were starting to explode, uh, where uh, laptops and iPads were just becoming a thing, a more acceptable thing for students and affordable thing for most uh, students around the world. And what I did, I did some research on the topic, and we 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 saw that Facebook in many countries outside of China, even back in 2005, 6, 7, was, uh, that's when their social media starts taking off. And at that time, China was doing uh, knockoff versions of, uh, of our, our social platforms. They had uh, Youku instead of YouTube. They had uh, Sina Weibo, which was the, uh, their version of Twitter. Uh, and they had um, also kind of a, a, a Facebook version as well. Uh, so that uh, we, we, I realized social media was, was the way that students are connecting. So it's become foundational for, for every, every place I've been since, since then in the mid-90s, whether at, on the university side, whether working with Education USA advisors around the world, teaching them how to leverage social media to reach students in their markets, in their home country markets, but also how to work better with the US higher ed folks, or back on the consulting side when I set up my company. And that was um, really foundational to uh, the shift that was happening I saw in how students were being recruited, that it wasn't just the in-person fairs anymore, it wasn't all the emails that we send, it was really, had really become this whole new frontier of possibilities for institutions to connect with international students. Uh, and that, for the last 15, 16, 17 years, has been a very important part of uh, how I communicate, not, not with only students uh, through work, but also through, uh, through uh, and helping my colleagues see the value uh, of how and like like we do here with the roundup uh, through LinkedIn, uh, my LinkedIn company page, my LinkedIn profile, our YouTube channel, our Twitter feed, um, Facebook page, uh, all of them for SMIE Consulting are simulcasting this live chat. Uh, so this is something that I, is a, a real value for me in terms of how I approach what I do uh, in, in in international education, and I help. Uh, colleagues from other in, in recruitment and you know, on the student services side, just f figuring out ways to find out where their audiences are spending their time and how you can better communicate with them. So that's the, kind of been my philosophy for a number of years now. But how should social media be used to reach international students? It absolutely has to be used. Uh, and each country, each uh, demographic potentially within a country will use social media differently. And it's understanding the nuances of the different platforms where in the past it was all these one-to-many platforms with Facebook and YouTube and Twitter where you'd throw your messages out into the ether and hope they connect. 
the, the tar ability to target messaging on videos, on uh, posts, on ads has allowed uh, social media to be much more granular in terms of its reach, uh, in terms of how you can get your message out in front of students. But there are also ways that we can be using it and should be using it to better connect individually with students. And that seems like a daunting task, frankly. And uh, when students are or institutions are dealing with massive pools of prospective students and trying to uh, have the make their content personalized and have those one-on-one -on -one conversations, this is this can be really the challenge that uh, eats up a lot of our time and our thought and like bandwidth and costs and all of those things that come into play. Uh, but the reality is. So social media has evolved, frankly, from those just single one-to-many platforms uh, that are out there. And we've seen in the last five to ten years, we've seen the rise of messaging platforms, uh, where it is very much one-to-one one -one or one-to-small groups. Uh, messaging platforms like WhatsApp, like Facebook Messenger, like uh, Line, like uh, TikTok, like uh, TikTok's not necessarily a messaging platform, uh, like um, WeChat in China, which is a, kind of an all-and-everything uh, <laughs> kind of a platform. Uh, and, but we'll talk, that's a whole other conversation, which we have touched on this uh, the last couple of months uh, with uh, when we talk about China. But uh, certainly what I've seen is that the, the opportunities to connect with students more on a one-on-one -on -one basis, not just the one-to-many, uh, which ads allow you to do and allow you to get somewhat personalized, but not, to, not without, without getting, having a huge budget and, and having a lot of ability to do different models and testing and ABs and all that. But uh, there are two, two articles I'm uh, sharing with you today, one from CNN that uh, talks about a new, uh, a new feature for WhatsApp and then also for uh, a great profile, and this is one of those few times where social media and international had really aligned together, and thanks to our colleagues at ICEF Monitor for their article is, that is very, very posed, poses a very good question. Is your TikTok good enough to, be, to get noticed by international students? I love, the, love how these two are, are coming together now. And point of the article uh, with, on the TikTok side, and we know TikTok is, uh, this uh, short-form video platform that is just has over a billion users globally. Uh, in addition to uh, the, the original parent company of TikTok uh, in China has their own version of it, very different version, frankly, uh, but concept of short-form video. Uh, what's, what TikTok has certainly taught us is that uh, beyond all the politics that are, that are still involved in uh, the use of TikTok at public institutions in a uh, number of states, about half the states in the U.S. don't allow public institutions to use TikTok for, uh, for, 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 for university business. Uh, we do, thankfully, in, in Nevada, we have a, two UNLV teams, a one that's an institution-wide TikTok team and one that's specific to admissions uh, that's primarily undergraduate admissions focused. But uh, that platform is run by our students, uh, particularly the, the undergrad, the UNLV admissions uh, TikTok team. Uh, so they are doing their versions of the latest internet or the TikTok trends or uh, the latest songs and doing versions of that that rela relate to some aspect of life on campus, uh, always taking uh, uh, different areas of campus that they'll shoot their, shoot their videos in. Uh, so those, I think, are what prospective students want to see. 
they don't want to see uh, and hang out on an institutional TikTok page and watch uh, your testimonial videos or the tours of your facilities. That, that, there are other ways that they can do that, and that's all great. But that's not going to be where the most eyes are going to get on your content. It's when you're resharing your students' uh, uh, TikToks. Uh, you're resharing their top moments and uh, their uh, their best, uh, most viral uh, content that they've had, because uh, that's what they want to see. And the, t and the ICEF article does make this point very clearly. And I loved um, loved the uh, phrase that they had in in the in the in the article. Uh, they have two two main points that let your students intrigue other students about your brand. Don't let yourself be the one doing it because it's not a place. TikTok and the article makes this point. TikTok it's not a place for overt marketing. Uh, lots of on, lots of other channels for that, and really, current international students uh, are and see check uh, are need to be part of the answer here uh, in terms of their what content that they have. If if you've got any savvy creators uh, that are have good audiences already to repost their content through your channel, that's a good thing, and that's the second point that uh, uh, the ICEF Monitor article mentions: repost that uh, you might not have the time to do a lot of original uh, TikTok videos of your own, and that's why reposting others' uh, good content is where, where you might get some traction. And uh, the point that, the quote that I love that I was looking for as we're, as we're starting this off is uh, that uh, what, what, it, what it is for, for students, uh, it's, <laughs> it, it is, uh, you can't take, uh, it's on TikTok especially, it's not, uh, you have uh, on TikTok. You have to be fun, right? Uh, you can't uh, spend money just to blow out uh, a message that you've got going out on other other platforms. And frankly, you can't take yourself too seriously. Uh, and if you do, and that's the way you come off, they're going to swipe uh, swipe off you. Uh, swipe right, uh, but in swiping right is not always good. Or actually, swipe up to get to the next video, right? So uh, that's the that's the piece that I, I really think is. Uh, important for us to use because we don't we don't really think about that as, uh, as we want to tell them what it's what's important that uh, that we need to be uh, really spending the time getting to know um, our audiences and what their interests are what's funny to them and that's that's where you connect connect with them so uh, that, and the, the line is students want other student watch other students on TikTok they very rarely watch institutions they're looking for authenticity and reliability not a brochure. Perfect. Love that. Love that line, because that really talks about exactly what I what I what we what we say is you, you find students where they are, and they when they're on certain platforms they're not looking for heavy stuff that they can get on a, a long form YouTube video, uh, or a, a post on Facebook. They're looking for uh, or a live chat event that's going on somewhere. They're looking for fun. They're looking for the students that can they can identify with when they are looking at university brands, and they are looking for people that can help tell the story of what it's like to be a student on your campus. And that's something we talk about all the time on, on, on this channel here, is, is helping, having your current students be your best advocates, because they are. And managed well, they can really turn uh, your what would be boring uh, brochures into something much more uh, impactful and engaging for prospective students to see uh, in terms of who you are as, as campus, who, what kind of students attend your institutions. So love that article from, uh, from uh, ICEF Monitor, so I really appreciate them doing that. 
The other is a real direct, uh, direct feature that I, I think, um, I know I'll be off to India in about 10 days uh, for recruitment efforts, uh, doing some fairs uh, through our agent partners, attending a conference. But India is a country where WhatsApp rules, and that's how everybody communicates. Uh, we, we, I got that last fall when I was in, in Latin America, spending time in Mexico, uh, Costa Rica, the entire uh, Latin American region. Uh, WhatsApp dominates how they communicate with each other, and that's one-to-one, -one, really, or one-to-small one -to -one -to groups. And what they've, WhatsApp has unveiled is a new video messaging feature where you, so you can now uh, record uh, short-form video up to 60 seconds long and that you can send out to, uh, to, your, to folks in your, in your messaging pool. So I know one of the things that I'm encouraging our admissions office to do in the coming year is to embrace these kind of messaging tools for international purposes, not necessarily for domestic where they have tens of thousands of inquiries and prospects they're dealing with, but for our international audiences. For example, I'm going to India. I'm going to be meeting with hundreds of students over the course of a week and week to 10 days, and that's, um, that's that. Well, that's something. Now I know I'm going to be capturing WhatsApp messages, WhatsApp numbers from them. They're going to be having mine if they pick up my business card. They're going to be in communication with me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to drop them into uh, into uh, into a, a WhatsApp group uh, for students that I met at the fair, and I'm going to send them a message from that fair. I might do it. I might do it on a one-on-one -on -one basis as they make as they make connections. I'll send a quick video back out. Uh, I'll use the same video that I recorded for one. Say, oh, it's great meeting you at the fair. I hope you got a chance to uh, get the information you needed about uh, UNLV. You got uh, use the QR codes QR codes to get to register uh, uh, register to get more information on the academic programs you're interested in to get into our workflow, uh, our com our communication flow. But sending out that message to them video format. They've seen me before at the fair where they picked up my brochures or, or uh, flashed our QR codes. They're, they're in our, in our they've got, we've, we got on their radar. I want to encourage them to continue that journey and using a short video message right after I've met them, within a day after meeting them, I can spend the time after the fair to really put them into a, a list, get that out, and uh, make, uh, hopefully make a, a positive impact in pushing them along in their journey towards finding us as an institution. So a uh, great couple articles from, um, from, the, uh, from ICEF Monitor and CNN uh, covering those two pieces about uh, TikTok and WhatsApp. So really grateful for those two, showing you how you can use social media to reach international students, very different ways, very different formats. And knowing the differences is, is a real challenge, and you have to have to keep your mind uh, and your mind open to the possibilities. Uh, keep your ear to the ground. Uh, subscribe to our newsletter so you can get the content regularly, as to know what the new trends are, uh, and listen to the roundup when you can. So you'll hopefully be right up to, right up to speed as, as to all these uh, all the different trends we're we're seeing around the world. Now moving on to our second question: Why retention matters most internationally? I have a very good friend who um, I've done some work with in the past uh, when he's been uh, uh, on the institutional level as a chief enrollment officer, and his uh, he makes the claim that it's not about uh, it's not about retention; it's about net tuition revenue. And uh, he's he's been in the domestic admissions world, so I I, I, I see where he comes from on a lot of different things uh, when it comes to domestic. Uh, but when it comes to international students, the I can't say that I, I agree with that model. Certainly there are certain folks at institutions that will see uh, net tuition revenue of those first-year students uh, as the most important factor in everything that happens but at an institution. But from an international educator's perspective, retention matters far more than net tuition revenue. 
uh, in terms of the value these students have to an institution because those students who pay that, that first year's tuition, if they don't pay second, third, fourth year tuition or they leave after a semester because they've had a bad experience, that they, the services that we talked about having weren't, they didn't see when they got to campus, uh, th then when we're not delivering on what we promised, it's very easy for that student to get disillusioned and leave and or transfer out, go home and tell their friends that, hey, don't go to this school because they don't treat you right or they, they don't have what they promised. They lied to me. Uh, it could be the extreme version of that. So why retention matters for international students more, and it should, should matter for domestic students as well. But retention for us at UNLV, and I'll, I've talked about this before, uh, is we're approaching it as a full life cycle approach to international students and international education at UNLV. It's from the time that they first inquire about the university to the time they become a successful alumni. And every point in between on that continuum. There are services that, and offices they'll interact with on campus uh, that as they, as they get to the university, as they're preparing to come, once they arrive for housing, for student employment, for food services, for um, eventually career services and academic advising, all of these up, to, up through alumni, those offices all have roles to play in the success or failure of that student becoming a successful alumni. Now, where we fall short as institutions is we often don't connect the dots, that it's all on the international office to figure it out and to be that, per that office that leads students all the way through. But the reality is that office can never do it all by themselves. Yes, they have a primary responsibility as for immigration advising, but that's not, and nor should it ever be the only thing that they do, that they should be the central point for international student success while they're on campus as they're coming in the door once they enroll through that orientation program through to the time they graduate. That office has legal responsibility for those students in maintaining their status, helping them maintain their status. So uh, there has to be a central hub but the reality is every office on campus that interacts with international students has to be aware of their different needs and uh, what they value, what's important to them, what they need to get them through their journey. And this is a long, long process and it doesn't happen overnight. We were purposefully going about it methodically at UNLV where we're focusing initially. We have brand building we need to do globally and that's the first year of, in my full-time role that I've been doing is building our brand around the world beyond just our hospitality program which is, is what UNLV is best known for academically. That's uh, number one in the world. Uh, but we talk about how important it is to, for, not, for other places, uh, influencers, partners around the world to know who we are and, and get us as an institution connected with the right partners, whether that be an educational agency, Education USA in certain regions, whether that's university partners, whether it's uh, a network of study abroad centers we have called USAC uh, through University Study Abroad Consortium. Uh, where we have identified locations around the globe where our students can go study abroad, where students come uh, from those institutions and study here. So working with established networks of partners, expanding our brand out into the wider world and, and focusing on key markets where there are obviously numbers that we can generate, that's all part of the larger plan. But to be, to be perfectly honest, I'm, I'm a one-person operation in terms of recruitment and programming, or recruitment and partnerships in terms of uh, setting up that international land, uh, infrastructure for us to uh, get real get 
noticed uh, and uh, be uh, being and engage with partners. Uh, I handle the MOUs and cooperation agreements with the universities that we deal with, with service providers that we might bring in to help us with different elements of the recruitment process, of the student experience. Uh, that piece uh, I have have that responsibility for at the university in addition to the brand building piece and so the recruitment side. So I'm working this week. We're setting up our agent trainings for the for the next uh, next cycle. Uh, we have two dates that we'll be uh, doing trainings next week with our agent partners. That uh, are important, uh, and they'll be going. That information goes into a, a newsletter that we send out monthly to our, our our university and agent partners, so that they're aware of how we're talking about ourselves in the market these days. What the process is for admissions, what the costs are, what funding is available, all of that. That's part of what we we do with our agent training, and that's part of our brand building too, and, and making sure that our partners out there are aware of uh, who we are, what, what's new, what's exciting, what news and events, that kind of thing. But uh, the retention piece ties into that because our partners overseas that helped us recruit these students are also the ones that are recruiting future students. So once the students arrive on campus and they're having good experiences, hopefully they're telling their, their, their peers back home, hey, uh, get connected with, uh, with UNLV through uh, this agency. And it, it's a mutually beneficial operation when everything is in alignment and everybody is communicating effectively across campus and globally to, through partner networks. So that's what we're really focused on building. And part of that has been building up our uh, International Student and Scholar Services team uh, so that they have the people to handle the, what will be an increased number, a uh, significantly increased number of uh, new students coming in in the, in the years to come. But we know that we needed them in place first before we really open up the floodgates because that helps us align other offices on campus like housing, like uh, student employment, academic advising, career services, and alumni offices that can really be better prepared to handle the volume, be better aware of the various issues that our international students are facing, and really provide uh, a, a clear uh, message throughout that, hey, international students, you're valued. We want you here. We're so glad that you are a part of our community, and here's how we're showing that love. And that's, that's an important piece, I think, when we talk about retention. I did a webinar this past week with, uh, with AIRC, uh, through AIRC, with some uh, really impressive colleagues uh, that talked about uh, the realities of, uh, and there were a couple of agency partners and, and myself and one other university partner, uh, community college uh, shoreline up in, uh, up in Seattle. And we talked through how, what retention means from our individual perspectives and how they can how we're each within our individual worlds are, are are managing the different pieces of that process of of for international students to make sure that their experiences are positive, that they're engaged while they're on campus, that they see value, and they feel like they are a part of a larger community and are given opportunities to grow and truly become who they're meant to be, and that's uh, that's successful alumni, and we all want that. We all have our different ways of of. of manifesting that in terms of how we talk about uh, our programs, how we talk about campus life, all of that. How we talk through that with prospective students is also important. I think that's that's a message that in our trainings we try and communicate to our partners, uh, our agent partners around the world is uh, it's about the community here and that it's not just about me as, an, as a re global recruitment uh, director, it's working with our individual admissions teams, working with our student services office once they've been admitted and uh, get their I-20, uh, working through the pre-arrival process, working through orientation and getting engaged on campus through other offices and yeah, international. the international office will be the entree to everything on campus once they arrive. 
but uh, there, uh, we all have our roles to play, and that's, that certainly became clear in this, uh, this webinar we did last week on the importance of retention. So definitely recommend, uh, if you're an ARC member, I know you can get that link uh, uh, from them. Uh, it'll probably be going out in upcoming uh, newsletters that they send out. So uh, that kind of communication is just so vital to uh, ongoing success uh, in, uh, in making sure your international students not only matriculate, enroll, but become successful students while they're on campus and even more successful alumni once they've graduated. So that leads me nicely into the final topic, which we'll just touch on briefly, and it has to do with uh, what do financial verification documents mean to you? Now, this may seem like a fairly simple, simplistic question. Well, it's the way students show that they have the funding they need to uh, meet the requirements that our, our federal government says. We need to document that they have the funding before uh, one, of the, one of the things they have to document before they'll be able to get a visa. So we've all been on campuses, and I certainly have, uh, where we've have uh, students have got their bank statement together, documented all the funding, uh, submit that as part of their application, we review it, they're academically admitted, they've got a little scholarship, but they've got enough funding from their parents or other sources to cover the, cover the cost for at least that first year. So that's what allows us to issue the I-20s once everything, all the other academic criteria have been uh, satisfied. So we do that, we send the I-20s out, they go apply for their visas at the U.S. consulate or embassy in their home country or wherever they're living, and then the consular officer who reviews their uh, application uh, may ask questions about where their funding's coming from, all of that. And then they get their visa and allowed to enter the country. But we've all been on campuses where students have documented all, their, all, that, all that funding, they get to campus and all of a sudden they arrive and they plead poverty, they'll come up with some story. Uh, sometimes it's legit, most of the time it's not. But basically what, what's happened is that money was pulled together for that, uh, for that bank statement to be issued. Uh, money was in one day and gone the next. And then there are ways you can kind of get around, uh, kind of meet, nip that one in the bud potentially, but that doesn't happen everywhere. What really got me going on this topic is something I saw in the Pi News this past year, uh, past week. Uh, they had their recent Pi Live Australia, and they had a student panel talking about uh, uh, coming out of COVID. During COVID, the, the work hour restrictions were lifted that allowed them to work more than 24 hour, 20 hours a week, uh, every more than 20 hours a week to, to help uh, pay their bills and all of that. Because um, there was a shortage of jobs and all of these, all of these things that were, were going on. And coming out of COVID, those, those hours have been rolled back, uh, not all the way back to 20 hours per week, but to 24 hours a week. And there, at the one of the focuses of this panel was, hey, we need to work 40 hours. We can work more than 40 hours a week. If I were back home, I'd be working 40 hours a week. Why can't I work 40 hours a week here? So this was the, the, the kind of the tone coming out of this panel uh, and what they call the realities of student life exposed at Pi Live Australia. And there were 25 students from 20 countries that were at a roundtable session for this for this event. And one of the students that says, uh, in our home countries, we work more than 40 or 50 hours per week. The math is clear, and the Australian government should know that we can work and we can complete everything in our school because we are hard workers. And right now, I'm working 24 hours. I'm earning uh, Australian dollars 750, where my fees for my schools are, th are 350, plus my rent is 350. That allows me with $50 to survive, buy foods, and pay, pay for buy food and pay for meals. Do you actually think I can do it? It's impossible. So here's what I don't get. 
all these students at some point, uh, the system is a little bit different, they don't have a, an in-person interview for Australia, it's all paperwork. Uh, at some point those students had to f submit financial documents, show that they had funding for, for their studies for that first year at least. And all, all of a sudden they get here and they have to work more than 24 hours a week to be able to pay for all their expenses, including tuition. In the U.S. we can't. Even though their international students are allowed to work 20 hours a week on campus uh, while school is in session, 40 hours a week during vacations, we can't include work that their future work that they're going to be able to do in the funding that they have to show. I don't know if it works differently in Australia, but my guess is it doesn't. But what I can say is this: what these students are saying is 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 ridiculous. That's um, maybe their reality. They think that they well, they just got in the country through hook or crook and hook or by crook and got their money together for the bank statement that the institution needed to be able to uh, issue their letter of admission. But that's it. Doesn't matter once they're in country. They should be able to. Uh, work as much as they can to pay for their bills, in including tuition, even though they already said they had money already to pay for it all. So this is where my disconnect happens, and my sympathy for them is is basically zero, unless there's been this massive situation that occurred with their whoever was supposed to be their sponsor, and they've died, or um, currency crash, and that happens. I've had that legit happen at, at many institutions. But if, that, <laughs> if having that financial requirement uh, it doesn't have any meaning at all, uh, then are, is that just something, a pro forma thing we throw out there? I don't know. But uh, this, is, this is something that um, we, um, I, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for what those students are going through and uh, to be able to come into a country where you said you have money for your studies and then basically you say you can't afford to pay your bills unless you work more than 24 hours a week. I, I think that's it just it, it's, there's, uh, it stinks, frankly. Uh, I don't have sympathy for it, but that's just me. Uh, but thanks again for being a part of the conversation today. I really appreciate you being here, and uh, thanks to those of you who are watching live. Always good to have you a part of the conversation. So until next time, uh, which uh, will be coming to you uh, one more time before I head out to India in a couple, couple weeks. So we'll be back next week uh, from the home office. So look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks very much. Cheers.